Okay, so we're going to look at the series of terms that you'll see there on your note sheet. Uh, again, that have been used historically to see how those who profess Christ sought to define what a church really is and what it believes. So the first set of terms that we're going to look at is the church visible and church invisible. Um, if you were with us when we went through our study on the 1689, we went through chapter 26 on the church, I kind of touched on some of this, so if you were there for that, um, just bear with me as I hit on a couple of these things. We want to be very careful when we use terms like the visible church and the in- invisible church because the scriptures don't necessarily use those terms, although I think you see it implied. So we want to make sure that we clarify what it is that we mean when we talk about the church visible and the church invisible. The assemblies of Christians or local churches that are mentioned in the New Testament are examples of visible churches. We'll see some of those uh, examples when we look at different passages here in just a moment. God has designed the church to be a clear, visible witness of him to the watching world. But the question that has been asked throughout history is this. Is visible the only way the church can be described? Okay, so we want to think through that. When we talk about the visible church, talking about us. So you're looking around and I'm seeing other believers here, right? So that would be considered the visible church. We all appear to be believers. Are we all actually believers? Okay. And well, do we hold to the gospel? Are we holding on to that? Right? We're making a profession of faith. We're holding on to that. There's some evidence of that in our lives. So in that way, we say, yes, we are the visible church. But turn with me to Matthew 13. I want to look with you at verses 24 through 30. This passage is very helpful as as Christians throughout history have thought through this aspect of visible and invisible regarding the church. So, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. And Will, I'm going to start with you, and then we'll just kind of work our way around here. So, if you can read that, verses 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the wheat, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the masters of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, very good. And then what's beautiful here is Jesus explains the parable. Isn't that great when you're like, Oh, this is a good passage to preach. I've got the meaning and I've got the application. Here it is. So drop down to verse 36. And Will, if you would... Uh, Continue reading that, 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with, with fire, so will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In, the, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him be. Okay, so that is a very important passage when we think about the concept of the visible and invisible church. This parable illustrates the reality that there will be those in the visible church who are not truly part of the true church of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the church being visible, we are talking about all those that profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they give some evidence of that profession, although some of them are not genuine believers. The visible church is the church as we see it on earth. Okay, so that's really important. I think I have those things jotted down for you there under, the, under that definition. But that last part is important. It's the church as we see it on earth. Okay, that's the visible church. Now, in what sense is it invisible? Okay, it's invisible in the sense that we cannot see the work of the Spirit which joins a person to Christ. Right? We, we, we can't detect that. It's the church, the invisible church, is the church as only God sees it. Let me show you a diagram that I think will be helpful to you. So on the outer circle, you have the visible church. And included in the visible church is the invisible church. Okay, so the inner ring is the invisible church. The invisible church is the church as only God sees it. Okay, we're going to look at a few different passages that kind of deal with this reality. Well, let me just give you a couple of biblical examples that I think will help clarify this. I mentioned this when we went through the 1689 on chapter 26 on the church. If you think of the 12 apostles you would have them on the outside, the visible church. Okay? They're seen, they're walking with Jesus, they're with him for those years of ministry. However, we know from the scriptures that only 11 were genuinely his. Those 11 would be in the invisible church as only God sees it, for God knew, obviously, that Judas was the son of perdition and that he would betray Christ. So that's a good example. Judas was shown not to be one of Christ's sheep. So outwardly you would look at it and you would say Judas is a follower of Christ. But as time goes by, you begin to see that that he is truly not. Okay, so the 12 are on the outer circle, the 11 on the inner circle. Okay, and then here's another good passage. And Jess, if you can read this one, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Okay, so here's another great example. You're having professions that are being made. Lord, Lord. Okay, so there's that identification. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the saying of it. Okay, but Jesus says, not all those who say that are actually mine. Okay, 
So you have, again, the aspect of the visible church, the aspect of the invisible church, and only God knows who is in the invisible church. Okay? So that's important. Jesus said, actually, on that day is when it will be, when it will be revealed. Okay? So many are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, but not all are going to be his. They're part of the visible church, those who had made professions of faith, but yet Jesus clearly shows us that these are not truly part of the church. They are not part of the invisible church as, as God sees it. It's often very difficult to ascertain who in the visible church is actually part of the true invisible church that only God sees. And Calvin says something very important that I'm going to mention later on about this, but I'm going to hold off for just a moment on that. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 19. This is another good passage that deals with this reality. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 through 19. Lydia, if I can have you read that, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, so do you see what's going on in in Paul's mind there? At one time, it appeared as if Hymenaeus and Philetus were genuine believers, part of the true church. They were definitely part of the visible church, right? Paul says they have swerved from the truth and they're teaching things that are false. And then notice what he says there right at the end. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. So in other words, Paul is reminding Timothy that although he may not know who truly is and who is not part of Christ's flock, God does. God knows. Only God knows who is truly in the church of Jesus Christ, those who have been truly called out of the world and unto his son to be part of his part of his body. Now, historically, Protestants have been the ones who have strongly taken up the cause to show the distinction between the visible and invisible church. It's not quite accurate to say that this began with the Reformers, because you see hints of it with John Wycliffe, John Huss, even Augustine dealing with it. But the Protestant Reformers were the ones who really made particular use of the idea. For example, both Luther and Calvin were eager to affirm this invisible aspect of the church over against the Roman Catholic teaching that the church was the one visible organization that had descended from the apostles in an unbroken line of succession, that is, through the bishops of the church. Okay, so this is where you really see it come front and center, is at the Reformation, because of what was being dealt with. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching anybody who is in the Roman Catholic Church are believers. And you had the Reformers stepping out and saying, that's not right. <laughs> and so that, this is where categories, heresy often has a way of creating categories so that you can work through things. All of our creeds pretty much come as a response to heresy. 
dealing with some type of heresy, to affirm afresh what we believe. Let's sit down, let's think through this. What do the scriptures actually teach? And let's put this down so that there isn't any confusion. So the Roman Catholic Church had argued that only in the visible organization of the Roman Church could we find the one true church, what they would call the only true church. And that hasn't really stopped. If, if you've dealt with any serious Catholics, not really nominal Catholics, but any serious Catholics, you've probably come across that aspect of this is the one true church started by Jesus Christ. You must be in this. Turn away from your denominations and come back to the one, one true church. Uh, there was a statement released by the Roman Catholic Church. This was back in March of 1987. And they had this to say. The basic characteristic of evangelical Christianity, that would be us, is that it eliminates from Christianity the church as the Lord Jesus founded it. There is no mention of the historic, authoritative church in continuity with Peter and the other apostles. They go on to say, A study of the New Testament demonstrates the importance of belonging to the church started by Jesus Christ. Christ chose Peter and the other apostles as foundations of his church. Peter and the other apostles have been succeeded by the bishop of Rome and the other bishops. And the flock of Christ still has, under Christ, a universal shepherd. That would be in reference to the Pope. You must be in that church, in their mind, to be considered part of the true church. In response to that kind of teaching, both Luther and Calvin vehemently disagreed. They said that the Roman Catholic Church had an outward form, but it was just a shell. In fact, Calvin said that just as Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time of Christ, was descended from Aaron, but was not a true priest, so the Roman Catholic bishops had descended from the apostles in a line of succession, but they were not true bishops in Christ's church. And the reason, this is important here, that Luther and Calvin and others have held this kind of position is because if a church departs from the true preaching of the gospel, it cannot possibly be a true church. That was the issue. As they started to read the scriptures and look at them for themselves, and they said, this is off. You're claiming to be this, but you're departing from the word of God, so you can't possibly be what you're claiming to be. In fact, Calvin put it this way, the pretense of succession is vain unless their descendants keep safe and uncorrupted the truth of Christ, which they have received at the Father's hands, and abide in it. So in other words, the Reformers were stating that the true successors of Peter and the Apostles are those who guard and proclaim the truth of the Gospel. So whatever outward, visible form a church might have, if it misses the mark on being what it is called to be, and that is a pillar and buttress of the truth, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, then it ceases to be a true church. So that, that, that's the issue there when you talk about the visible and invisible church. Now I think, like I had mentioned before, about this aspect of the visible and invisible church, there's something very important that we want to keep in mind here. And this was something that Wayne Grudem mentioned that I found to be, to be very helpful. He said, when we recognize 
that there are unbelievers in the visible church, there is a danger that we may become overly suspicious. We may begin to doubt the salvation of many true believers and thereby bring great confusion into the church. Calvin warned against this danger by saying that we must make a charitable judgment whereby we recognize as members of the church all who, by confession of faith, by example of life, and by partaking of the sacraments, profess the same God in Christ with us. I think that's a really helpful thought to keep in mind here as we think about the visible and invisible church. We're not God, are we? Right? We, we don't know like he does. Grudem goes on to say here, we should not try to exclude people from the fellowship of the church until they, by public sin, bring discipline upon themselves. On the other hand, of course, the church should not tolerate in its membership public unbelievers who by profession or life clearly proclaim themselves to be outside the true church. So in other words, the Lord has given us the process by which people are removed from the true church. Right? So we're not to just look at somebody suspiciously and think, well, they didn't do their devotions this week and they didn't memorize any scripture and they didn't, right? So you become overly suspicious of people. So God has given us the prescription of how we are to handle situations within the church. So he's given us the process through church discipline on how we can walk through that, right? Rightly administered. So very important to keep in mind as you think about the visible and invisible church. All right, any comments or questions about the visible or invisible church before we move on? Yes. He's talking about those within the church who are professing who aren't really like Th- That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and that, that's a great question, Ronnie, because we know from what he has given in regards to church discipline that he, he couldn't be meaning just tolerate all you know, people, whatever they're doing, and at the end of the age, I'll take care of it. So th- these are you know, people that we're looking at and we're seeing... Uh, a, a genuineness, there may be that aspect of, I don't think that person is genuinely a believer, but there's nothing that you can necessarily pin you know, on that person. So if somebody's living in rebellion against God, public sin, as Grudem was saying here, then we have the process by which that is to be, be dealt with. But we shouldn't take upon ourselves what rightly belongs to God in the final judgment and be you know, just ripping people up and casting them out of the, out of the church. So good question. Okay, any other thoughts before we move on? Okay, so the next set of terms that has been used historically is looking at the church local and the church universal. When we look at the New Testament and we see the word church, we see it being applied to a group of believers really at any level, from as small as believers gathered together in a house church, all the way to the group of all true believers in the universal church. And I want to walk you through a few different examples of this, and I have those down for you. Okay, uh, Romans 16, 3 through 5. Ryan, would you mind reading that? Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Read also the church in their house. Okay, good. So there, there you have that aspect there. Dave? I, excuse me. Uh, I do want to go back. I just have a question about... Um, visible and invisible? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I look at this, it says, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, um, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And like, yep. like, I guess my question would be, could you explain that? Because like, I mean, if you see a person like doing like mighty works like this, you would, to have that type of authority, you would think that like, you know, they're, you know, the spirit of God is really moving in them, especially at that time. So, right. Yeah, I would say in light of that, you also have Paul's um, warning in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there will be false powers and signs and wonders done by the, the evil one. So even though things may appear in a certain way, they may not actually be uh, genuinely from the Lord. And in particular with yeah, 2 Thessalonians 2... Just read that chapter. I, I don't remember exactly the, the verses, but... <laughs> yeah, Second Thessalonians 2. Um, and, and here you have something that's very important, and I hope you caught the connection between Matthew 7.23 and the text that we looked at in Second Timothy 2, uh, verse 19, I think it was, where Paul said, um, The Lord knows those who are His, and let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So you had that as the, um, the, the foundation upon which somebody knows they're genuinely a Christian. There's that turning away from sin. These people in verse 23 in Matthew 7 are described as those who were workers of lawlessness. So in other words, there was a practice of lawlessness. There was a continuation. There was habitual sin that was not being turned away from. So despite whatever works they may have been doing, these works contradicted those works and proved that they were genuinely unconverted. Does that help? Okay. Alright, so back in Romans 16, so you have this aspect, the church in their house. Also in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Marilyn, if you can read that. Okay. So there you have Romans, Paul's letter to Rome, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that aspect of the church that is in their house. Okay, so again, going from small to large here. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Forrest, if you can read that. For the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord Okay, so you have that aspect first in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16 of the house, dealing with the house. Now Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about the church of God that is in Corinth. So you're dealing with the city there. Dave, if you can read this one in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. Okay, good. So here's Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. So again, you have this aspect of city. And then in Acts 9, John, if you can read that one. So the, <coughs> the, 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 
Okay, so here again you have <clears throat> this term, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So now you're talking region. Okay, so you have the house, you have city, you have a region. Going through that, and then Ephesians 5.25. Dave, Mole, if you can read both of those for me. Okay, so in both of these passages, we're talking about the church universal. Okay, so you start small, and you see the same term is used for all of them, whether you're dealing with a local congregation or a universal congregation. Now, the reason that there has been discussion about this is because throughout history, there have arisen two significant disputes around the discussion of the local and the universal church. First and most significantly for the church around the world has been the dispute about whether there is a prescribed order and polity or government for the universal church as there is for the local church. Well, the Roman Catholic Church maintains that a universal order does exist. Right? If you remember that statement that I made before that the Catholic Church released, Roman Catholic Church released back in 1987 where they talked about <clears throat> under Christ the church still has a universal shepherd. So in other words, the Pope is the head of the whole, of the whole church. Now, many Protestant groups, such as Presbyterians, maintain that structures have developed which are allowed and are useful, but are not mandated in Scripture. On the other hand, Congregationalists, like Baptists, have maintained that the New Testament prescribes no structure for the universal church. All cooperation between congregations is understood to be voluntary and consensual. Okay, so that's an important distinction. Think of a Baptistic church, right? We believe in the autonomy of the local church. We believe that God governs by a plurality of elders in each local congregation. And any type of uh, fellowship that we have with other churches is voluntary and consensual. That's not binding authoritatively. If you read our confession in chapter 26 you would see that it mentions those things, that there's not any binding authority that one church has over, over another church. Okay? So, again, you can see why during the time of the Reformation, this was really important to understand, this aspect of a universal government versus a local government. And then a second controversy that has been disputed has surrounded the question of what, whether one can legitimately refer to something as a church, if an order or structure for it has not been set down in Scripture. In other words, if a so-called church governs itself in a certain way that seems to not have any scriptural support, can it truly be called a New Testament church? Okay, that's a good question, and that's one that we will answer in another class when we look at the marks of a true church. Okay? So that, that was what's going on there between the local and universal church. Those two terms and historically how they have been seen. Okay, so any comments, questions regarding the local aspect?
local universal. Like I said, those of you that were in the 1689, we kind of covered a lot of this. Okay, let's move on then to another set of terms that has been used. And that is the church militant and the church triumphant. Okay, perhaps you've heard of these terms being referred to before. The church militant, and I believe this is on your notes here, yep, refers to Christians alive now. That's us. Okay, who therefore remain engaged in battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. Did anybody feel the weight of that war this week? (laughs) Amen. Every day, right? Every moment, a constant battle raging. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the church militant. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has actually used another term as well. Uh, They've used the church suffering to refer to the saints that are suffering. But I think, in my estimation, that fits under the category of the church militant because in warfare there is suffering. Okay, I want to look at a series of passages here that will help you to understand this. Is this concept of the church militant seen throughout Scripture? Okay, let's go to John chapter 15. And we'll look at verses 18, starting in verse 18, and reading through chapter 16, verse 2. And let's see, I think, Mike, we're up to, up to you. So John 15... Starting in verse 18, reading down through 16.2, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Starting at verse 18, reading through chapter 16, verse 2. Okay, thank you, Mike. 
So there's a great passage dealing with the reality that the church militant is up against the world. Okay? So here's Jesus and his parting words to his disciples. Here's what it's going to look like, guys. Okay? The world's going to hate you because you are following me. Okay? So dealing with that aspect, regarding the world, we see the church militant. How about regarding the flesh? What do the scriptures speak about to this end? Popular passage for this one, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. Joe, if I can have you read that. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find that the principle that evil is present in me, Okay, so a clear, notice verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war. So that's where we get that aspect of the church militant. Here's another passage that is helpful to that end as well. 1 Peter 2.11, Jenna, can you read that? Okay, so there's another aspect of it. The passions of the flesh, which do what? Wage war against your soul. Okay, so there's this aspect, this militant aspect, this seriousness about this war that we are in. And it, it's, I don't know about you, but oftentimes it's easy to forget that I'm in a war. Right? Walk out, the sun's shining, had a good night's sleep, so on and so forth, Right? It's easy to forget that you're in a war. Because you think war, you think bombs are exploding all around you. and you know. But that's the reality of what's going on within. We have to understand, and we'll look at this right here when we talk about the aspect of the church militant against, against the devil. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Ronnie, if you could read that. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Okay, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, you have that aspect. Really interesting when you think about the aspect of a, of a roar, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. Right? You've seen those Discovery Channel things where the lion's just hanging out in the thicket and ready to jump. That's the mindset that you're dealing with there. Okay? It's not a pretty one. It doesn't end well for the gazelle or the zebra or whatever it is that's 
blindsided by that. Okay, how about Ephesians chapter 6? And let's see if we go to the back. Rick, could I get you to read 10 through 12? If you could just read verse 13 as well, please. Thanks. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand Okay, so that aspect, just the simple aspect of armor, connotes what? Warfare. Right? You don't just put on armor for any, I'm just going to put on armor today and just walk outside. No, you're putting on armor for a specific reason. I'm in a war. I need armor on me because I have an enemy that is after me. Okay, so that's the aspect of the church militant. That's where we are, right? Waging this war. We gather together as the soldiers of Christ to encourage one another, strengthen one another, help each other in this war that every one of us are in. And then on the other hand, you have the church triumphant. And this refers to Christians now in heaven who are removed from the combat of spiritual warfare and are fully victorious with him. We're fully victorious as well, but we're still in the war here. Okay? But they are removed from the combat of spiritual warfare. Okay? 2 Timothy 4.7. Rachel, can you read that? Okay, notice how Paul tells Timothy here, his last letter, last few words here to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. Right? You see that aspect, Timothy? Here's what we're in. Okay? I have finished the race. So there's this aspect, uh, this is over at this point. Okay? So there's this aspect of triumph and entering into the rest. And then how about Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23, Kathy? Right, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Okay, so this aspect, and you see that throughout the book of, of Hebrews, this aspect of rest in Christ and the culmination of that rest being entering into that day. What a day that will, that will be. Okay, a few minutes left here just to mention about the rise of denominations. So you can flip over on the back page there. If you just want to jot a few things down, I just have a couple, couple notes here on this. Um, how many of you have been out talking to people or uh, if you've come across a Roman Catholic or maybe um, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or something along those lines and they bring up this argument, Satan is obviously working amongst you. That's why you have so many denominations. Right? Roman Catholic Church said that, that's why we're one church. You, you're everywhere. Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, you're all over the place. You, you, don't, you can't even agree with, with each other. I've, I've had that before. <laughs> and that's hard to think through and answer, and you have to be discerning 
in that. So we're going to talk for just a few minutes here about the rise of denominations throughout history. Denominations as we know them today largely arose in the 17th century. And so Protestants did not look, and this is very important, Protestants did not look upon the dividing of the visible church lightly. This wasn't sound like, hey, let's just divide, right? There was this desire for unity, but unity guided by truth. Okay, so the Protestant principles of the Scripture's clarity, perhaps in a theological term, if you may have heard, perspicuity, which means clarity of Scripture. So that principle and the authority required the Protestants to divide from false teaching. Okay? It, it caused them to say, we don't take division lightly, but the Word of God is clear on this, and therefore we must divide. Calvin said this, we acknowledge no unity except Christ. No charity, that is love, of which He is not the bond. So in other words, you're not really loving somebody if you're staying in union with them, knowing that you're believing different things about Christ and about the Gospel. So we have to be very careful on that. There's been much discussion in recent years, if you're familiar with the ECT, the Evangelicals and Catholics together, and trying to unify on some things, but some would say you're crossing boundaries and you're blurring the lines of, of distinction. So it's not a dead issue. <laughs> it's not something that uh, has gone away. But what this meant for the Reformers is that they recognized that the cost of unity at the price of truth was not a good deal. Mark Dever put it this way. I, thought, I think it was really good. Correct division should be preferred over corrupt unity. Okay? Correct division should be preferred, preferred over corrupt unity. And so, for these reasons, various groups on the European continent broke free from the control of the established church and began pursuing their own understanding of faithfulness to the Scripture. Most of the denominations popularly known in America today initially grew up in the United Kingdom in the mid-16th to early 17th centuries. Now, denominations may have solidified divisions within the church, but they also ease the consciences of the many scripturally guided Christians in the 17th century. Put yourself in their place. You've got the Word of God in your hand, and you're reading it, and you're in the one church, and you're looking at this and saying, this is not right. They're believing something false, and not something false just generally, something falls specifically about Christ, about justification, about the gospel. Well, what do you do at that point? So this is the wrestling match that's going on here. There's this, again, they weren't joyfully looking at this and saying, hey, let's divide. They were wrestling through this. Even with Luther's 95 Theses, I mean, you're dealing with a man who is wrestling through this. Let's, let's talk about this. I'm sure if the Pope sees this, he'll agree with what I'm saying here, right? This wasn't this big, hey, I'm going to divide the church, let me nail this thing on the church door. Sometimes we get that mentality. No, this was a stance 
saying, let's look at the scriptures together. Let's reason through this. And so you have this aspect of freedom to meet together and to worship according to one's conscience, guided by the scriptures, was a fundamental step in the development of denominations as they are known today. And one of the driving factors in the rise of denominations was the desire for doctrinal purity in accordance with the Word of God. That's what was driving this. We want to believe what the Scriptures teach. As questions of the Gospel began to be settled, secondary but important issues, such as church government, led to separate congregations of Baptists, Congregationalists, and Presbyterians. So there is that unity that they had. We got the gospel right. It's justification by faith alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone. Scripture teaches us that alone. Okay, now let's look at this. How should the church be governed? Let's look at the scriptures and see what... And so then these secondary issues, okay, they, they were locked in on the gospel issue, but these secondary issues, which were very important, became the issue where you start to see these, this separation they still held to the reality that the gospel was central and that they were all brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were, they, they were each persuaded by Scripture regarding the governing of the church. Right? And we, we still see that today. We have our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who we would agree with doctrinally on the gospel. But as far as an issue like the government of the church, we would disagree with them. Issues such as infant baptism versus believer's baptism. We would disagree with them. Okay, so those are the things where you start to see these denominations arise as these issues are wrestled through and thought through. And that's what you see today, kind of on the landscape of America in, in, in particular, when they, that they came over and... You had this aspect of the church spreading. You had these things that were popping up and and continue to pop up. So it's hard to think through these issues. You have to make sure that the gospel is central on these these issues. When you think about denominations, the gospel has to be central. These other things we can continue to walk through. And I I think in recent years you've had a really uh, good understanding between... uh, for example, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in coming together in conferences, you know, together with them. Baptists and Presbyterians coming together in one conference saying, hey, we're holding to the gospel. Yeah, we disagree on this, but let's affirm what we hold to in the gospel. We have a lot in common with them. So in short, the doctrinal convictions and the importance attached with them have proved to be grounds for both unity and division amongst, amongst Christians. The rise of these differing denominations, uh, to a large extent, again, represents the desire for faithfulness to the purity of the word, rather than visible unity at the expense of the word. And so, from our perspective, we should count all who hold the truth of the gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever denomination they may be in, and at the same time, we must hold true what we believe the scripture teaches on important secondary issues. And the desire in all of this is to be faithful to God's Word. That's what we want at the end of the day, right? We want to be able to look at the Scriptures and say, the best I can tell, this is why we hold to what we hold to. 
We must continue to study to that end so we can be assured of what God has revealed to us in his word. Okay, we're out of time. So that is an overview of the issues that the church has wrestled with throughout the centuries.